Well, we have been learning about the kingdom, and we saw the united monarchy, haven't we? Saul, King David, King Solomon, and when King Solomon died, his son Rehoboam came to the throne. But you remember, because of his wickedness and the wickedness of Solomon, his father, the kingdom was going to be ripped from him and given to Jeroboam. And we spent some time learning about King Jeroboam. He's the first red guy up there. He's the king over the northern ten tribes, where Rehoboam is the king of the southern two tribes. Now, I know we're in 1 Kings, but did you know that in order for us to understand some details in 1 Kings, we have to go further back in history. We have to go way, way, way back in history to discover how and why we have arrived at this place and what is going on. It will help us to understand this morning all of the details that will come up here in this little section. What we're going to learn about today takes place right here, right here in about 970 B.C. But we need to go way back to the 1400s B.C. If I say that, do you happen to know what events were taking place in that century? Does anybody know? Were we rewinding or going backwards about 400 years, almost 500 years? What was going on way back then? What was going on 500 years before this? No guesses? Yes, Mr. Giegerk. That's That's right. We have Moses, the prophet of God, the deliverer of the children of Israel, out of Egypt. You remember that the children of Israel, Jacob, were in Egypt as slaves. And God brought this family up out of Egypt, brought them into the wilderness of Sinai, brought them to Mount Horeb, the mountain of God, and there he made them a nation. There he made them a nation. There were probably over two million people there that came up out of Egypt after having been slaves. They were there in the wilderness for 40 years. There's one word that tells us why they were in the wilderness for 40 years. Does anybody know what that one word is? Samuel? Unbelief. That's right unbelief. They did not believe God's promises. Instead, they were afraid because they had sent spies into the land, and these spies had brought back reports of giants in the land, and they were afraid they would get squished like grasshoppers, weren't ready to go into the promised land. And so God judged them and said, you will wander in the wilderness for 40 years until this entire generation dies, and then my promise will come true. In the next generation. That happened. 39 years later, Moses led the people north and began the conquest of the eastern side of the Jordan River. And then he died. And then the next day, Joshua and the nation of Israel crossed the Jordan River 
And it wasn't the next day, but within the next month, they crossed the Jordan River into the Promised Land. They had the northern campaign, the southern campaign, the central campaign, and they conquered the land. But they did not drive out all of the inhabitants. And this was on purpose, actually, because God said it would be little by little. Now, they were supposed to do it, but it was going to be little by little, lest the land became desolate. But you remember the history. They didn't do it. They didn't do it. You see, God had not given Abraham this promised land in his day because the iniquity of the people in that land was, as God said, not yet full. That's going back another 400 years. So we're looking at about a thousand years when God made promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. Jacob had his 12 sons. Promises were given to them who formed the tribes. You see the banners around. And now we have these tribes who have become a nation. They were in Egypt as slaves. Now they've come up out of Egypt. And now they've come into the promised land. And God rules over them as their king. And he does this through judges. But over and over, we remember the cycle of the judges. They follow the Lord, but then they turn and they sin. They worship idols. God judges them, brings up a nation to judge them. They become slaves. They cry out to the Lord. God delivers them. They serve the Lord, and then they just do it right on again and sin and serve idols. And it happened over and over throughout the era of the judges. And you know what? It's really not just the cycle of the judges. It's the cycle of the kings, too. And in some ways, I hope not. It's a cycle that's in some people's lives today. We have the temptation, very common, to do that. We see Rehoboam this morning doing that. So anyway, they're in the promised land. They have the judges ruling over them. But remember, they wanted something like all the other nations. Who remembers? One word. What did they want like all the other nations? A king. God gave them a king. That's where we saw Saul be made their king. I don't think it was God's plan because um, David, I believe, was the plan. They were just too early, 40 years early before God could introduce their king to them. And because he, he was their king and he knew that there needed to be a king of the tribe of Judah, that was in the plan. Uh, Saul was of the tribe of Benjamin. Well, they demand their king, they get their king. You remember the history. We don't have time to go through all the details. He is rejected because of his disobedience. David becomes king. And God makes a promise to David that his dynasty, his house, will last forever. That's the reason why when we see Solomon, David and Solomon die, and then we come on to this next page, we see the dynasty of, of um, David just keep going. Whereas the dynasties, the different colors in the north, keep changing up all over the place. Not so in the southern kingdom because of that promise God made to David. But in the reign of Solomon, you remember they built a temple. And you remember that Solomon made affinity with another king. Does anybody remember what nation he made affinity with. Now, you remember what that word means. That means he married the princess of a foreign land. What was that land? Anna? Egypt, that's right. Solomon married an Egyptian princess to create an alliance between their countries. 
Solomon had a prosperous reign. He was bringing in 25 tons of gold into his kingdom annually, not to mention everything else. In his day, silver was counted as stones on the street. Bronze, they didn't even count it. It was so abundant. This is the kingdom that Rehoboam, his son, inherited. And within three days, he lost it. Well, he didn't lose it all, but he lost the northern of the kingdom of the people and to Jeroboam. Well, he continues on in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem's a magnificent city. I mean, you remember the last queen that came from Africa to Jerusalem and recorded. Where did she come from? Who remembers? Queen of Sheba, down from Ethiopia region. Yes, and she came and she saw the wealth. She saw the glory of Solomon. She said, the half of it wasn't told me. This is amazing. Absolutely spectacular. Well, you know what's going to happen today? Another person of royalty is going to come north and come to Jerusalem. And we're going to learn about that visit today. But let's learn some things about Rehoboam. Again, we're here in 970 B.C. The northern kingdom by this time is totally collapsed because of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and his idolatry in causing Israel to sin. He also oppressed the people who served God. And what did those people do? They fled the northern territories. They went to Jerusalem and they actually strengthened the hand of Rehoboam. All those, it tells us, who set their heart to seek the Lord fled the northern kingdom and went down to Jerusalem. Now, did Rehoboam prepare his heart to seek the Lord? Did Rehoboam prepare his heart to seek the Lord? Well, if we're here in 1 Kings chapter 14, and we look at these details, we're going to find out that for three years, Rehoboam walked in the way of David and Solomon. I'd like to show you a family tree. Do you guys like family trees? Some people don't like family trees because they're, they're complicated, but this one's complicated. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not too bad, though. We have David up at the top. And we know about Solomon. Now, David had other sons, Absalom being one of them. But he had other more than just Solomon and Absalom. Um, but yet he had Solomon and Absalom. Solomon married this woman, who, by the way, was an Ammonite. We're going to find that out later. And these two had Rehoboam. Now, Rehoboam, just like his dad and just like his grandfather, loved many women. He had many wives, so many wives that this, time, this, this family tree would get so complicated we wouldn't be able to understand it or read it. It would get so complicated. He had 18 wives and I think it was 30 concubines. We're going to read it here in a moment. Um, here it's just showing two of them, two of his wives. So here we've got Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, the grandson of David. And he marries Maaka, who is actually a daughter or granddaughter of Absalom. So they were um, extended cousins. And 
here this family situation is going on. Now, I have asked you all if you wanted a harmony of first of Second Kings and Chronicles, and I'm still working on revising that. I had intended to have that published for you this morning, but I found some things that I wanted to revise. And so the digital copy, you can check in your email, you can download the digital one, but I want to wait to print it until I get it a little bit more refined. In Second Chronicles is the harmony passage here. Second Chronicles 11 goes alongside and chapter 12 with 1 Kings 14. So if you have your bulletin or something, you can stick it over there in 2 Chronicles and then keep your finger or another in 1 Kings 14. We're going to go back and forth between these. You won't be able to compare them side by side, but we can flip back and forth between them. So let's go on over to 1 Chronicles. We learn about Rehoboam's family life. For three years, Rehoboam served the Lord and walked in the way of David and Solomon. And then here in 2 Chronicles 11, verses 18 and following, it goes through and lists his family and his wives and his children. And look at verse 21. It says, Rehoboam loved Maacah, the daughter of Absalom, above all his wives and his concubines. For he took 18 wives and threescore, I was wrong earlier, actually 60 concubines, and begat twenty and eight sons and threescore, sixty daughters. So here he has this huge family. Now, we can learn a lesson from Rehoboam, just as we have already learned from Solomon and just as we have already learned from David. Who you marry is important. And start off, God only intended you to have one wife or one husband. This is a problem. We talked about this before. It's a problem repeated again in this generation with Rehoboam. 18 wives. And above that, he had a favorite, Maaka. Now, you're going to meet her again. It's just in passing here that her name is given. And you might just keep on reading and totally forget her. I'm curious, how many of you know who she is? know anything about her other than what I've just now told you. She does. Guess because we've been talking. And she actually helped me learn this, this harmony. She's a, Evelyn's my major helper in putting the harmony together back in the first draft. She's a, this, this lady here, wife of Rehoboam, is interesting. Right now, just names her and goes right on. It says that she was his favorite wife. When Rehoboam is dead and his son Asa becomes king, over in 1 Kings chapter 15, we find out some more details about Maaka. In 1 Kings 15, 13, we find out that she is an idolater. She is a worshiper of idols. The favorite wife of Rehoboam is an idolater. The reason we know that is because Asa was a godly king. And Asa removed idolatrous worship sinners from all across the land. And he had to remove his own mother from being the queen mother because of her 
idolatry as he tore down her idols. So just as it was true with Solomon, not explicitly stated, here, did Maaka have something to do with causing Rehoboam to turn away from the Lord? We don't know. But knowing how things work, she was involved, although Rehoboam is responsible. It tells us in verse 22 that Rehoboam made Abijah, the son of Maaka, the chief, made his one son the chief of all the others. Basically, he's the crowned prince. To be ruler among his brethren, for he thought to make him king. And he dealt wisely and dispersed of all his children throughout all the countries of Judah and Benjamin unto every fenced city, and he gave them victual in abundance, and he desired many wives. And so Rehoboam has structured the kingdom. He has strategically placed his sons throughout the kingdom. He has fortified the cities. Now, just as in the days of his father Solomon, there are cities throughout Judah that he has fortified and strengthened. There's a fascinating article in the New Moody Bible Atlas that describes the archaeological research and discovery about some of these fortresses um, through, from this time period that were built by Rehoboam. And Rehoboam is becoming stronger and stronger and more powerful and wealthier and wealthier. Following just as his father. And then it tells us, in, if you skip down the page a little bit to keep it in harmony, at verse 13, 2 Chronicles 12, 13, it says, So King Rehoboam, strengthened himself in Jerusalem and reigned. For Rehoboam was one and forty years old when he began to reign, and he reigned seventeen years in Jerusalem, the city which the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. And his mother's name was Naama, an Ammonitess. Here we have a summary of his reign. And Rehoboam strengthened himself. Now, why did I have you jump down there? Well, because in the parallel passage over in 1 Kings, this information occurs first because it chronologically took place first, the details of him strengthening himself. It was a thing that took place over the years. And it tells us then, if we go back to verse 1 there in 2 Chronicles 12, that it came to pass when Rehoboam had established the kingdom and had strengthened himself. Look at the last part of verse 1. He forsook the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. Now I asked you a question earlier. Is it good to be strong? That's a trick question because the answer is yes. Yes, there's nothing wrong with being strong. But in our strength, who do we trust in? That's right. We need to trust in the Lord. But so often, when we are strong, we think we can handle it. We think we can do it. And so we don't trust in God. And we do things on our own strength. When really what we need to do is we need to prepare our heart to seek the Lord 
every day, whether we're weak or whether we're strong, every day to be seeking the Lord. In fact, Paul, the Apostle Paul, jumping way forward in history, he said that when he is weak, then he is strong. When he's weak, he says, then I am strong. He says, because the power of God rests upon me. So often, when we are weak, there's nothing we can claim any of the credit. It's all God working through us. And sometimes when we're strong, sometimes it's not always clear who's working through who or who's doing who's what, whose way. But when we are trusting God, whether we are strong or weak, He needs to receive all the glory. And we need to trust Him. And so Rehoboam, he becomes strong. He strengthened himself. There's nothing wrong with being strong. But when he was strong, when he had strengthened himself, he forsook the law of the Lord. And not just him, but all Israel with him. Second Chronicles just states the overstatement, the summary of the situation. Flip back over to 1 Kings chapter 14 and verse 22. 1 Kings 14 and 22. It tells us that Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord. And they provoked him to jealousy with their sins, which they had committed above all that their fathers had done. For they also built them high places and images and groves on every high hill and under every green tree. Do you hear that? They were worse than their fathers. But wait a minute. Didn't we just read? Didn't we just read? 2 Chronicles 11, verse 17, for three years they walked in the ways of Solomon and David. The cycle. It's there again. They got strong in their own might. And they forsook the Lord. And then they took that strength, and instead of using it to serve the Lord, they used that strength to rebel against Him worse than what their fathers had done. There's nothing wrong with being strong. We, it's good to be strong. But strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Rehoboam didn't have that scripture. We do as it is recorded in Ephesians 6. And so we know where real strength needs to come from and how we need to use real strength. Here they used it to build up their high places and their images and their groves and all their idolatry. That's what all this is. These are all descriptions of building places to worship idols and not just to worship idols, but to do terrible and perverted things. For that's what's described in the next verse. Verse 24, it says, And there were also Sodomites, Sodomites in the land, and they did 
according to all the abominations of the nations which the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. We're going to come back and this afternoon, Lord willing, look at more specifics of what this is talking about and how it's relating to the society of that day and how contemporary it still is. The kings were judged and evaluated in the inspired Word of God as to how they dealt with these people in the land. All this, committing abominations. You know what an abomination is? An abomination is something that to God is repulsive and absolutely hateful. It is something that God hates. And here, they're worshiping the idols above their fathers. And they're also committing abominations that were committed by the people that God judged. God brought them up out of Egypt into this land to drive out these people who were committing these abominations. They never really finished the job. Instead, they started acting like them. It's a major, major thing for us to be aware of as Christians. What are we doing? Is there anything that we have that when we look around and the culture around us, is the culture influencing us? Are our friends and people influencing us in ways that are not according to God's word? That was a problem in this land as well. Not just in who you marry, but in your friends. And the whole nation is doing this. It was such a terrible time. We had hope for Rehoboam, didn't we? Didn't we? He did not set his heart to seek the Lord. And so what happens? In his fifth year, he lost the kingdom divided in three days. He spent the next five years strengthening himself, fortifying cities. The kingdom was stronger on its southern border than it had ever been before. Remember, his father married an Egyptian princess, forming an alliance between the nations. What's the status of that today? Well, God is working behind the scenes and is moving among the nations here in the days of Rehoboam. And there is the king of Egypt named Shishak. Shishak is king of Egypt. But he doesn't stay down in Egypt. He comes up north. And you know what he does? He conquers all of Rehoboam's fortified cities. So these cities that Solomon spent his 40 years in reign um, building and fortifying, and now you've spent five years fortifying these cities across the nation. Shishak comes up and starts to conquer them, one after the other. He just goes from place to place. He tells us in 2 Chronicles 12, verse 2, that it came to pass that in the fifth year, of King Rehoboam, Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem because they had transgressed against the Lord. 
Here's an important note of why we need both records. First Kings, it doesn't tell us why Shishak came up. It just tells us that he came up against Jerusalem. But when we look over at Second Chronicles, it tells us that he came up against Jerusalem because they had transgressed against the Lord. God was going to use Shishak, Shishak to judge the nation of Judah. He comes with 1,200 chariots. Now, remember, Solomon has a lot of chariots. Now, how are you related to Solomon? I don't know. Remember, Solomon was married to an Egyptian princess. Was that your aunt? Was that your sister? I don't know. But you know what? That relationship wasn't doing any good. You see, the whole purpose of the marriage alliance, the reason why they married each other, was for generational peace. Are you following what's happening? He formed affinity with Egypt so that he could establish generational, multi-generational, several generations. That means that his children and his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren, this marriage, they would be together. They, would, they, they, would, they wouldn't fight their own family. But you know what? It didn't work. Is that any surprise? Well, not to us. We're looking back at it. But it made a lot of sense to him at that time. And the truth of the matter is, if you study anything about history, it seemed to make a lot of sense to a lot of people, even though it doesn't make any sense. You see how important it is to do things God's way? Solomon had no business marrying an Egyptian princess to create this bond of loyalty between the nations. He already had a wife. But he did anyway. Did it do any good? None. The very next generation, first generation, here's Shishak, king of Egypt, conquering and destroying every single one of his fortified cities. He comes with 1,200 chariots and threescore thousand horsemen, and the people were without number that came with him out of Egypt. They didn't even count how many soldiers came with Shishak. And it wasn't just Egyptians. Shishak had hired mercenaries. Mercenaries are hired soldiers from other places. The Lubims and the Sakinims and the Ethiopians. Well, that's interesting. Ethiopians? Is that maybe where the Queen of Sheba came from? What's happened there in one generation? We don't know. And it says in verse 4 that he took the fenced cities which pertained to Judah and he came to Jerusalem. All the fortified cities that are supposed to protect you from this king, they're all been destroyed, Rehoboam. They've all been destroyed. Now Shishak is right outside Jerusalem. Why? Did you catch why? Because Rehoboam wasn't serving the Lord. 
Rehoboam had forsaken the law of the Lord. Here he is in Jerusalem. Shishak, the Egyptian king, all of his chariots, his horsemen, and his army that is so vast they didn't even bother to count them, has besieged Jerusalem. What is Rehoboam going to do? Well, it tells us that there came a man, Shemaiah. You guys remember Shemaiah, right? How many of you remember Shemaiah? I suspected that. Shemaiah, remember there was another time when you were engaged in warfare. You guys remember the last time he was going to be in a war? You guys remember that? Jeroboam had just broken away, and Rehoboam begins to assemble Judah and Benjamin, and he's going to go fight and, and suppress this rebellion of Jeroboam. And God sends this prophet, Shemaiah, to Rehoboam and says, don't go fight Jeroboam. This is of the Lord. Now, five years later, Jerusalem is besieged by an enemy army. Shishak, king of Egypt, the nation with whom your father formed affinity, has got you besieged. It's hopeless. And in this situation, Shemaiah comes again to Rehoboam, but not just to Rehoboam, but to all the princes of Judah that were gathered together to Jerusalem because of Shishak. Think about it. All of the fortified cities are falling one by one by one. Shishak is conquering them. And the people are fleeing from these cities if they can get away. And they're fleeing to Jerusalem, including all the princes. And they've all come to Jerusalem, but now they're besieged. And Shemaiah says unto them, Thus saith the Lord, ye have forsaken me, therefore have I left you. In the hand of Shishak. God has left him in the hand of Shishak. Whereupon, whereupon the princes of Israel and the king humbled themselves. They humbled themselves. And they said, The Lord is righteous. The Lord is righteous. Can you say that with me? The Lord is righteous. Say it again. The Lord is righteous. Now, do you think you could say that? Right after a prophet from God comes to you, while you're besieged by this dreadful enemy, an army with soldiers beyond number, and says... I've left you in his hand. <laughs> There's a lot of people who would be tempted to say, that ain't right. What's wrong with you, God? Aren't you supposed to be our God? But no. They humbled themselves as they said, the Lord, that is Jehovah, is righteous. That means he is right. In what he is doing. That means they're admitting that they deserve to be judged. In verse 7, when the Lord saw 
that they had humbled themselves. The word of the Lord came to Shemaiah, saying, They have humbled themselves. Therefore I will not destroy them, but I will grant them some deliverance. My wrath shall not be poured out upon Jerusalem by the hand of Shishak. Nevertheless, they shall be his servants, that they may know my service and the service of the kingdoms of the countries. He's leaving them in Shishak's hand, still doing the same thing, but not to be utterly destroyed. What does he say? There will be some deliverance. So you know what Shishak does? Shishak marches right into Jerusalem and he ransacks it. He doesn't kill Rehoboam. He doesn't carry Rehoboam away as a slave. He, he, he just strips him of all his wealth. Now again, remember where we're at in history. Who was his father? Solomon. What was the annual accumulation of gold each year by Solomon? 25 tons of gold every year was gathered. Silver was as rocks in the street. Shishak took it all. All of it. He stripped the royal palace of the gold and of the silver and of the bronze and of everything valuable. He went into the temple of Jehovah and he stripped it of all of its treasures. That's what the record says. For Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem and took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took all. He carried away also the shields of gold which Solomon had made. Remember Solomon had so much gold, he just decided to beat it down and hang it up as big shields in his forest of Lebanon. Remember his palace? The, all the pillars of the magnificent sandalwood, and he'd created these huge shields covered in gold and hung them up on the pillars. Remember? 300 large shields and 200 small shields, 500 shields of just gold for decoration. Shishak took it all. Took it all. Tons and tons and tons of gold. Took it all. And then he went back to Egypt. So much for Solomon's plan of multi generational peace with Egypt. Not only in one generation was the peace lost, but in one generation all of the wealth had been stripped of the kingdom. All of it. One generation. Gone. Because Rehoboam himself and the people did not continue to set their hearts to seek the Lord. So you know what you do, Rehoboam? Oh, oh, Shishak, I think you took this. You, you think maybe, I, I do. He says he took all. He took the treasures. So now Rehoboam, he's left with this magnificent palace stripped of everything valuable. It looks pitiful. So you know what you do? 
you really miss those gold shields. I mean, going into his palace, the forest of Lebanon. Remember the trees, all of them, that he made the pillars out of? The 500 shields of gold are gone. So bare in there. So you know what? He tries to scummage together as much bronze as he can. Now, bronze is not very valuable, even still today. It's not really that valuable. But he makes new shields, and he makes them out of bronze. But he doesn't just hang them up there on the pillars for everybody that walks by to admire them. I mean, in the days of Solomon and before, the, the, the shields of gold just hung there for everyone's admiration all the time. But now, he replaces them with bronze shields. <laughs> Sorry, it's pitiful. It's pitiful to contrast it. Bronze shields instead of gold shields. But then, listen to what they do with these bronze shields. For it tells us, verse 10, instead of which, the gold shields, which King Rehoboam made, shields of brass, and committed them to the hands of the chief of the guard that kept the entrance of the king's house. And when the king entered into the house of the Lord, the guard came and fetched them and brought them again into the guard chamber. Do you know what that means? That means that only on special occasions would they take these bronze shields and put them on display. And then, as soon as the special occasion was over, the captain of the guard would take these bronze shields and bring them back to the vault. Now, you remember in the days of his father, they didn't even bother to count the bronze. They didn't even bother to count it. It was so abundant. Silver was so abundant, it was like stones in the street. Now, these bronze replicas of the golden shields are so precious that the captain of the guard keeps them in a vault except for special occasions. Pitiful. But don't think that it was too bad. For verse 12 tells us that when he, Rehoboam, humbled himself, the wrath of the Lord turned from him. You see, the wrath of the Lord was upon him because of his wickedness, because of him strengthening himself in power and might and pride. But when he humbled himself, the wrath of the Lord turned from him that he would not destroy him altogether. And also in Judah, things went well. You know what that means? The economy didn't utterly collapse. People still had food. People still were able to survive. Rehoboam was able to make these bronze shields. But it was nothing like it was before. So King Rehoboam, he strengthened himself in Jerusalem and reigned. For Rehoboam was one and 40 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city which the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. And his mother's name was Naamah, an Ammonitess. And now we have a summary of his life. Verse 14, 2 Chronicles 12, 14. And he did evil because he prepared not his heart to seek the Lord. That 
is the key phrase. Notice the emphasis on the heart again. It's not just about the fact that he did evil. It began in his heart, which he did not prepare to seek the Lord. Now, Rehoboam continues to live, and there's more detail about him, a little bit more detail about him later on, but just in summary here, it's given us. Verse 15, now the acts of Rehoboam first and last, are they not written in the book of Shemaiah the prophet? Here we have Shemaiah again, same man who came and prophesied here. And Avido the seer, the wise man, concerning genealogies. And there were wars between Rehoboam and Jeroboam continually. And Rehoboam slept with his fathers. That means he died and was buried in the city of David. And Abijah, his son, reigned in his stead. Look with me again at verse 14. He did evil because he prepared not his heart to seek the Lord. Remember the people came down from the northern tribes, all those that had sought the Lord in their hearts. Rehoboam did not. And all the trouble, all the problems, all the evil that he did was a result of him not preparing his heart to seek the Lord. It's interesting in it as I think through it because you see he has a situation with Shemaiah. Each time the prophet comes to him, he's, he's, he's there ready to obey. You notice that? It's as if his, his mom and dad taught him to obey. But yet, it wasn't a daily thing. It wasn't a way of life. I mean, he, the prophets had to come to him. He forsook the law of the Lord himself. He, he, he wasn't preparing his heart to seek the Lord. And the day by day, all this trouble came. Do we, in our hearts, seek the Lord every day? Every day do we begin by seeking our God in our hearts, in our hearts. Do we start our day that way so that when the temptations come or the problems come, we are ready to obey. We are prepared to do what is right. We're planning to do what's right. We need to prepare our hearts to seek the Lord. And it doesn't matter if you're a grandma and a grandpa or if you're a mom or a dad or if you're a little child. Today you can purpose in your heart, I will seek the Lord. I will seek the Lord. Father, we come to you this morning so thankful that we can come to you, that we can seek you and that you will be found. Lord, I pray that we all would humble ourselves before you that we would draw close to you and know you more. Lord, I pray that we might all seek you in our hearts so that when the temptations come, we're prepared to fight, not in our strength or our might or our discipline, but in your power, in your strength, as we let you fight the battle, as we let you win in the life. And Lord, we pray that as we seek you, that our desires, our passions, our purposes would be aligned with you and your desires and purposes and plans and passions. Lord, if we're doing that, I don't think we're going to have time to be sinning. So Lord, we come to you, we seek you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.